Blog Talk Radio. studio in St. Augustine, Ponta Vedra, Florida. That's close to Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks for listening to the Eastern Airlines Radio Talk Show. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show. We have a great show for you, for you tonight, and to all the listeners around the world, we say welcome. Now, just as a reminder of yesterday, I have this for you. There's a tear in your eye And I'm wondering why For it never should be there at all With such power in your smile Sure a stone you'd beguile So there's never a teardrop should fall When your sweet lilting laughter's Like some fairy song And your eyes twinkle bright as can be You should laugh all the while And all other times while And now smile, smile for me When Irish eyes are smiling Sure it's like a morning spring In the lilt of You can hear the angels sing When Irish hearts are happy All the world seems bright and gay And when Irish eyes are smiling Sure they steal your heart away For your smile is a part Of the love in your heart And it makes even sunshine more bright Like the linnet's sweet song Crooning all the day long Comes your laughter So tender and light For the springtime of life Is the sweetest of all There is never a real care or regret And while springtime is ours Throughout all of youth's hours Let us smile Each chance we get 
When Irish eyes are smiling Sure it's like a morning spring In the lilt of Irish laughter You can hear the angels sing When Irish hearts are happy All the world seems bright and gay And when Irish eyes are smiling Sure they'll steal your heart away The radio show trusts you had a great St. Patrick's Day yesterday. Okay, Chuck, would you do the honors? Yes, sir. Hello, Eastern family and friends from around the world. It's great having you with us. My name is Chuck Albright. I come to you live from a retirement center called The Villages in the middle of the state of Florida. Where the weather here today was 70 degrees. Welcome and thank you for listening and calling the show. You've truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say we became Eastern Airlines' international radio show. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with the radio listeners from around the world during the broadcast. If you haven't called the show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611 and just say hello and talk to us on the air. We're live, you know. We can identify many countries around the world who listen in with our blog talk radio application. Isn't it great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out not only to the Eastern family, but to the listeners from many different countries around the world. That's what we try to do every week on the EAL radio show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to these broadcasts? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www.ealradioshow.com or perhaps by signing into our site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number. Remember... 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Let me repeat the number so you can write it down for your Monday night visit. 213-816-1611. And by the way, tell your friends about us. And don't forget, you can listen to any of our 406 Monday night broadcasts and 75-plus Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Scrolling down through the archives of our broadcast, each episode is briefly described. We're getting close to 500. Wow, we've really been in air for a long time now. Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate on and you want to talk live to our host, we ask you to please mute your phone and our producer who doesn't have the capability of filtering out your background noises, but you'll have to keep the ice kind of quiet in those glasses. I see we're number one for takeoff. So, Captain, let's get Flight 40, 
5.06 in the air. Tower Blue, 
picking up a rifle and marching off to save civilization. Me neither. So what made the greatest generation so special? Are there any lessons we could take from them that might help us lead better, more satisfying lives? Yes, I think there are. Let's look at the top six things we can learn from our remarkable ancestors. How frustrating, how frustrating is it when, people, when talking to people, you hear them blame all their misfortunes on someone else? Sure, there are injustices in the world, and some people have problems through no fault of their own. But usually, if you're having problems, it's because of a bad decision you've made. If you can't afford a house, is that because baby boomers are greedy, or is it because you ran up $75,000 in debt doing a gender studies degree and now you sit in expensive cafes all day eating avocado toast at $9 a plate and tweeting from your brand-new iPhone about how you just can't afford a house. <laughs> when the greatest generation made a decision, they accepted the consequences of it, good or bad. And if the consequences were bad, they looked for a solution instead of someone else to blame. That overpriced avocado toast... Walmart will sell you a bag of avocados and a loaf of bread for under seven bucks, giving you a week's worth of toast for less than a dollar a day. You can save another two fifty by replacing the avocados with less fashionable grape jelly. Look at what you spend money on. Is it really necessary? Is the benefit it brings you really worth the price tag? And do you need to replace things so often? If you're worried about money, and most of us are, then why buy a new stove or cell phone when your old one still works just fine? You know, and Carrie, the greatest generation believed in make do and mend. If something was good enough, they wouldn't even think of replacing it with a more fashionable but unnecessary model. If a pair of pants got ripped, they would patch them rather than throw them out. Keeping up appearances was important, but people would rather wear older Repair clothes when it gets too unnecessarily in debt to buy new ones. When something broke, the greatest generation fixed it. They didn't throw away because it was too much trouble to repair them, and they didn't spend money when they could make or modify something themselves. Greatest generations had a simple attitude to aspiration. If you want something, you work until you earn the money to buy it. Taking on unnecessary debt was irresponsible. Expecting others to pay your way was lazy. And for these people, grinding, grinding poverty may be bad, but going on welfare was far, far worse because it was humiliating. Self-reliance for the greatest generation didn't stop at repairing and repurposing their possessions when they broke or wore out. It also a way of life. You hadn't worked for something, it wasn't truly yours. If you couldn't afford something yourself, you had no right to expect others to pay for it. Nowadays, it's common to hear people boasting about how important, well-paid, or creative their job is. Greatest generations weren't like that. They would take great pride in the job well done. But work was a serious business, not just a status symbol. A frequent complaint about millenniums is, is they lose interest quickly. It's not uncommon to hear about them starting a job, then six months later they're moaning and groaning. It wasn't challenging enough for them. Those who grew up in the Great Depression had different ideas. A job wasn't something you did to feel challenged or fulfilled. 
It was something you did because you needed to be done. If you weren't happy with it, that was tough. You gritted your teeth, got on with it, even if your job wasn't challenging and creative. You had to stick with it to put food on the table. Yeah, Chuck. This determined attitude to work paid off when a really big job had to be done. That's to beat Japan and Nazi Germany. The greatest generation didn't march against American foreign policy or pose for photos sitting on a German anti-aircraft gun, as we know who did that. The task was there in front of them, and they just got on with it. The cause, it needed to be done. When the greatest generation was faced with a challenge, they didn't give up and feel traumatized. They looked for a way to overcome it. The farmers whose lands were blighted by the dust bowl didn't sit back and wait for the government to help them. They moved to look for new jobs, even if that meant headed for the coast. To these people, challenges were a part of life. You just had to face them and do the best you could. Today's young people have no idea of how easy their lives really are. Wars are fought by small volunteer militias, militaries rather, excuse me, and the risk of being drafted is basically nil. What would they say if they were told they were going overseas to fight and wouldn't be coming home until the war was won? The greatest generation didn't say a word. They just picked up their rifles and riveted guns and did what needed to be done. Then they came home and got on with their lives. People today love to talk about their trust issues, whatever that is. And when they're not doing that, they might be talking about their open relationship, whatever that is. A lot of Gen Xers and Millennials live in a complex web of half-truths and fake identities, so it's probably no surprise they don't trust each other. To the greatest generation, promises was something to be taken seriously, whether that promise was an employment contract, a marriage vow, or a loan agreement. And a big part of someone's image was how trustworthy they were. If people couldn't rely on your word, you could forget about getting any respect. If your colleagues couldn't rely on you to do your job properly, you wouldn't have that job for long. And if you were a soldier and you walked away from your post in the middle of the night, you wouldn't get media interviews and tributes for presidents like Bowie Bergdahl did. You'd be tied to a post and shot. All the most valuable lessons the greater generation have for us about taking life seriously. That doesn't mean that they didn't enjoy their lives because they certainly did. Look at the movies, music, the literature they created, if you have any doubts about that. But they did know that you had to take the rough with the smooth, and that simply giving up when things got difficult was certainly not an option. Uh, Jim, they also didn't get stressed over things they couldn't change. They didn't obsess about uh, trivial problems. They didn't over-complain of their lives. They found something that worked, a car, a style of dressing, a relationship. Even then, they stuck with it. Someone's image depended on the ethics and reliability, not their possessions. Some who lived modestly but worked hard and kept kept his word would earn a lot more respect than a flashy show-off. Most of all, the greatest generation were modest. They didn't feel the urge to share every aspect of their lives with everyone they met, and social media would have been horrified at them. They didn't boast about their accomplishments and shunned those who did. That's all the more remarkable because the accomplishments were so great. They made the world we live in today 
We owe it to them to learn from their way of doing things. I would like to recall a few things that can be identified with the greatest generation. Born in the 1930s and early 40s, we exist uh, as a very special age consort. We are all silent generation. We are all smallest number of children born since the early 1900s. We are the ones, the last ones. We are the latest generation climbing out of the depression who can remember the winds of war and the impact of the world at the war which rattled the structure of our daily lives for years. We are the last to remember ration books for everything from uh, from gas to sugar and shoes to stoves. We saved tinfoil and powdered, uh, poured fat into cans. <laughs> I remember that. We had mixed white stuff with yellow stuff to make fake butter. We saw cars uh, on blocks because tires weren't available. We can remember milk being delivered to our house early in the morning and placed in a milk box on the porch. A friend's mother delivered milk in a horse-drawn cart. Sometimes we fed the horse. We are the last to hear Roosevelt's radio assurance and to see the gold stars in the front windows of our grieving neighbors. Uh, And we can also remember the parades on August 15, 1945, VJ Day. Don, we saw the boys home from the war, build their Cape Cod-style houses, pouring the cellar, tar papering it over, and living there until they could afford the time and money to build it out. We remember trying to buy a new car after the war, and new cars were coming through with wooden bumpers. We are the last generation who spent childhood without television. Instead, we imagined what we heard on the radio. As we all like to brag, with no TV, we spent our childhood playing outside until the street street lights came on. We did play outside, and we did play on our own. There was no Little League. There were no city playgrounds for kids. To play in the water, we turned on the fire hydrants and ran through the spray. The lack of television in our early years meant for most of us that we had little real understanding of what the world was like. Our Saturday afternoons, if at the movies, gave us newsreels of the war sandwiched in between westerns and cartoons. Telephones were one to a house, often shared and hung on the wall. Computers were called calculators, only added, and were hand-cranked. Typewriters were driven by pounding fingers, throwing the carriage, and changing the ribbon. Holy new... Sunoco, the Internet, and Google were words that didn't exist. Newspaper, magazines were written for adults. News was broadcast on a radio in the evening by Gabriel Hebeer. We were the last group who had to find out for ourselves. As we grew up, the country was exploding with growth. The GI Bill gave returning veterans the means to get an education, spur colleges to grow. VA loans fanned a housing boom. Pend-up demand cooped with a new installed payment plan put factories to work. New highways would bring jobs and mobility. 
veterans joined civic clubs and became active in politics. In the late 40s and early 50s, the country seemed to lie in the embrace of brisk but quiet order as we gave birth to the new middle class, which became known as baby boomers. The radio network expanded from three stations to thousands of stations. Telephones started to become a common method of communication, and faxes sent hard copies around the world. Jim, our parents were suddenly free from the confines of the Depression and the war, and they threw themselves into the exploring opportunities they had never imagined. We weren't neglected, but we weren't today's all-consuming family focus. We were glad we played by ourselves until the streetlights came on. They were busy discovering the post-war worlds. Most of us had no life plan, but with the unexpected virtue of ignorance and an economic rising tide, we simply stepped into the world and started to find out what the world was about. We entered a world of overflowing plenty and opportunity, a world where we were welcomed. Based on our naive belief that there was more where this came from, we shaped life as we went. We enjoyed a luxury. We felt secure in our future. Of course, just as today, not all Americans shared this experience. Depression, poverty was deep-rooted. Polio was still a crippler. The Korean War was a dark presage in the early 50s, and by mid-decade, schoolchildren were ducking under deaths. Russia built the Iron Curtain, and China became Red China. Eisenhower sent the first advisors to Vietnam, and years later, Johnson invented a war there. Castro set up camp in Cuba, and Khrushchev came to power. We are the last generation to experience an interlude when there were no existential threats to our homeland. We came of age in the 40s and early 50s. The war was over, and the Cold War terrorism, Martin Luther King, civil rights, technological upheaval, global warming, and perpetual economic insecurity had yet to haunt life with insistent unease. Only our generation can remember both a time of apocalyptic war and a time when our war was secure and full of bright promise and plenty. We have lived through both. We grew up at the best possible time, a time when the world was getting better, not worse. We are the silent generation, the last ones. More than 99.9% of us are either retired or deceased and feel privileged to have lived in the best of times. Now, what's your excuse? When the United States entered the war in 1941, swing music went to war too. Jazz music provided comfort for families at home and soldiers abroad. Many musicians were drafted into the military and took their music with them. Some of them led military jazz bands that traveled the world to boost the morale of troops. Glenn Miller entered the Army in the fall of 1942 and was placed in the Army Air Force. Initially, he played trombone for a 15-piece dance band at Maxwell Field near Montgomery, Alabama. Miller was then allowed to form a large military marching band from which he drew musicians from smaller service bands and orchestras. Many of them were featured on CBS Radio's weekly service band broadcast called I Sustain the Wings. 
1944, Miller got permission to form a 50-piece band, the Army Air Force Band, and go to England to perform the troops. They gave at least 800, 800 performances. On December the 15th, 1944, Miller was to fly from England to Paris to play for soldiers on the continent. His flight disappeared over the English Channel, and Miller was declared missing in action. I had the I Sustained the Wings sound clip, but uh, we want to talk a little bit about what's been going on with Boeing and um, also Atlas Air. We have some things to talk about. But did anything that we read tonight, did uh, it uh, touch a little spot in your memory or your heart about what you remember growing up? Because most... Retired Eastern folks are children of the greatest generation. But I remember so many of those things. I remember we couldn't afford a television when they first came out in that oval uh, screen. And uh, we had only one person. Fortunately, was my next-door neighbor in Miami where we lived in the 40s. And the kids would all go to the front porch and look through the living room because... Uh, the living room faced that front porch, and fortunately, we were able to sit outside and watch that tube. And I think I remember seeing Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. I believe it was one of the TV shows. But uh, any thoughts about what your memories were back in those days? And I remember the milk bottle being delivered to our home. You guys remember that? Uh, Jim, uh, Neil, I remember. Uh, I, we lived way out in the country, out in Rhode Island, and I can remember several times in the winter when there was snow on the ground and the uh, milk truck couldn't get through, uh, they delivered with a horse and a sleigh, uh, something like a sleigh, they deliver our milk. When I got married, my husband was a milkman. That's okay. how he started out before he was going to school nights learning uh, technical um, television and uh, all of the technical stuff. Uh, so I remember that very well. You guys remember the ice truck? We had ice trucks because yeah. we didn't have oh, yeah. freezers. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the ice truck? And as a kid, you'd want to, when the ice was being delivered, you'd sneak out and reach inside that ice truck and pull some ice out and suck on those ice cubes or, or slices of ice. I remember that very well. That's a rare trip. And, and Neil, I can uh, tell you, I may have mentioned this before, I don't know, but we had a washing machine in the bathroom, small bathroom, and all and it, you had to shift gears and run it through a ringer and all that stuff. And uh, it was my job, uh, if the weather was bad, I would load all the clothes that had been washed into my little red wagon, and I would drag it up to Capitol Street, the main drag in West Jackson, Mississippi, and I would go up to the hardware store, which was right next door to the laundromat, which had dryers. And I would yeah. throw all those clothes in there and put in a couple of dimes. And while the clothes were drying, I would go next door to the hardware store, and they had a glass compartment out front, just like stores had back those days. And they had a television in there. In 1951, yeah. Jackson, Mississippi had its first television station. And I would sit there and watch Boston Blackie. Now, I don't know if he's some kind, of, some kind of detective or something, but I didn't care what he did. I was going to watch him, but I could hear through the glass 
<laughs> and at 8 o'clock, it would go off the air, and then I would sit there and watch a test pattern until the closing. <laughs> <Yeah. would dry. laughs> and let me tell you, when you're just sitting there watching a test pattern in the dark at night, you are bored. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that was some watch test. Tom Mixon, Cisco Kid, Sam Spade, mm-hmm. the Inner Sanctum. Oh golly, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh yeah. The creaking oh, door. Yeah, different world. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. We have be we that old timey radio, you know. Be sitting on yeah. the, everybody sit on the floor and listen to the radio. <laughs> Actually, my grandparents still had an outhouse. Oh, golly, golly, we did too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sears Robot Catalog. I lived with my grandparents uh, for a long time out in the country from Lexington, Mississippi. And, and I, like Neil, Neil said, uh, the Sears <laughs> Robot Catalog, and we had a roll of cordon tissue when the preacher came to eat dinner on Sunday. <laughs> did you worry about so spiders? They, left, they put the Sears Robot Catalog back there. Spiders. I was worried about snakes in that thing. Spiders. Yeah. <laughs> We have another Atlanta caller. That's not you, Jerry, is it? No, it's Al. How's everybody? Hey, Al. You're, Hi, you you are you old enough to be a, be a child of the Greatest Generation? Oh yes. <laughs> Join the group. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. You know, uh, in Goldsboro, North Carolina, where I grew up. Uh, we had uh, we had a Triple A uh, baseball team, and it when it played out of town, Tarboro, Rocky Mount, uh, some of these other towns around Carolina, uh, my brother and I would go down to the newsstand on Main Street, Center Street in Goldsboro, and there was one uh, magazine store that sold magazines and newspapers and tobacco and pipe tobacco and all that. And we'd listen because he had a speaker uh, on the front of the store, and a bunch of people would buy Cokes and sit out there and listen to that ball game and get peanuts. And I'll never forget mm-hmm. putting those peanuts in that Coca-Cola bottle and watching it foam. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you had the bag, you hold your hand just right, and you pour them in your hand, they went right into the Coke bottle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember doing that. Or- could have been an RC bottle too, because RCs are real big back in those days. Oh yeah, Orange Crush, yeah. <laughs> Grape Head, Doctor Pepper, Root Beer. Uh, Root Beer. They were yeah. the days, though. They really were. Uh, uh, I'm glad hey, I was part of that. My uncle used to make that. a homemade root beer. Did you homemade Did you ever make beer. homemade ice cream? Did you ever churn oh, with the Lord, ice around yeah. and the yeah. salt? Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. Oh, you can buy one of those on the internet now. Was it rock <laughs> yeah. salt? Yeah. Or did it taste good too? It just had a flavor you'll never see it. You'll never have again. Better <laughs> blue Now, what's going to happen in fifty years when there's we're not here and the ones behind us, they don't even know about it. Yeah. I'll be here. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure we'll last till next week. I tell you, yeah. You know, it's been great talking about uh, those years. And uh, we do see a marked contrast between when we grew up and what we see today. And 
uh, the inter- uh, how young people are entertained. Uh, to me, it's very disappointing, but to them, I guess that's uh, their way of life now. And, uh, well, they, they don't know any better. No, they don't. They don't. And then we say that we had the most fun. And then we look at our, our grandchildren. And uh, But if you sit down and talk to them, they, they feel that they're having the most fun. I personally see a lot of stuff that's that's going on that I don't think is fun. But um, I guess that's uh, the big gap between our generation and two other generations. Well, you know. Oh, uh, I agree with uh, that. Well, Chuck and Jim, you know, old codgers like ourselves now, you go to a waiting room in a, in a doctor's office and everybody's got one thing in their hand. That's you right. You know what that is, a smartphone. And they're smartphone. all looking down at that smartphone. You can't leave the house without it. And they talk I read about an article that one time. The first, the first computer was built in, uh, I think it was Chicago, and it took seven stories to create the computer. And the, the iPhone or the smartphone that you have today has like a hundred times the capability of that seven-story building. That's right. Um, Everybody says, well, the old days were this and the old days were that. And it was. And I'm I'm one of the people that say, well, yeah, we did this or we did that in the old days. But I guess I'm old enough to realize that technology has brought things into the world that we never even dreamed of that well, come about, you know. I'm waiting for the Jetsons. We've got Uber right. cars now, and they're driving themselves. <laughs> Pretty soon they're going to be flying. Well, after this after this breaking news, we're going to talk a little bit about I want to get something off my chest. So let's do a breaking news thing here. I hear the music. Chuck, breaking news. Breaking news uh, dated March 14th. This uh, the NTSB released an initial report on Atlas Air Crash. Uh, we had uh, touched upon that uh, earlier, and the report that they that came out about the February 23rd crash, which was about 40 miles from Houston uh, George Bush International Airport, it showed the plane, in fact, uh, hit front of an extreme weather condition. And the report shows that the, uh, the electronics in it, which is ADSB data, the plane followed the normal descent and arrival procedures to the airport, just like uh, it was designed to do. And the data showed that the plane was uh, descending through 13,800 feet and uh, the controller uh, charged the aircraft and uh, and advised the crew of, of the thunderstorm and the participation and um, it was moving in the same general direction as the airplane as it was coming down what they call a given vector uh, for their arrival. The pilots uh, obviously didn't want to have that on a plane bumping around it so they wanted to change their vector uh, to north and west of the weather and arrive at the airport on Runway 26 left. The data 
The data shortly after the new approach had agreed upon showed the plane continuing and descended to 12,000 feet with a ground speed of 290 knots, which the report states are consistent with the arrival procedure of the airport. A few minutes later, though, the pilots were instructed by ATC to turn to a heading of 270 degrees, and the ADASB data showed that that command was followed out by the crew, and the point of heading the plane was still in a descent passing through 8,500 feet. One of the problems that they encountered was, of course, getting around this, in this storm. The plane and the pilots were complying with all ATC instructions. It was um, 1238, the data showed the aircraft leveling off at 6,200 feet, and then started a slight climb to 6,300 feet. Flight data recorder said, said the report indicated that some small um, variance in acceleration was uh, consistent with the airplane entering turbulence. While there was no confirmation from the NTSB on what caused the crash, the data from the flight data recorder and the ADSB both implied that the aircraft entered turbulence, which was consistent with the pilot's input to push the throttles to full power. This is a standard procedure for all pilots when they encounter wind shear, and the plane steadily climbed four degrees nose up and uh, con consistent with that input. The data also showed, however, very shortly after the plane pitched nose, nose down, 49 degrees and 18 seconds, the plane's speed accelerated to 430 knots. And there had been no confirmation from the TSEB on whether this was a deliberate input or if the aircraft had experienced an extreme downward force that cleared the initial Report, however, is that the, the stall warning, the stick shaker, was not active. In the report, um, a still image is attached from a security camera that caught the image of the aircraft at 20 degrees nose down pitch moments before it made contact with the ground. This image is consistent with the data taken from the flight data recorder, which shows that the plane was gradually pulling out of its steep descent. At this time, there's been no comment from the National Transportation Safety Board on what the final cause of the crash was or what caused the plane to pitch its nose down. Um, I think we'll continue on with some of the other stuff and maybe uh, well, check in uh, a little bit. Well, Chuck, I, I just wanted to, uh, Jim, do you have a picture of what might, uh, you know, what Chuck read? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, have, I, I formed bought, a, a picture in my that, mind what happened. Out. What do you think, yeah, Jim we, Holder? I, first of all, first of all, if you're a count of turbulence at 6,000 feet and you're going, what were they doing, 200, 260, 270, I don't really know. But if you're in tired of turbulence, the last thing you're going to do is go to full power. I don't know where they came up with that ridiculous idea. You do not want to speed up to go through turbulence. You won't, might want to slow down just a little bit. And I don't know. That makes me think that they got the whole thing wrong somehow. Uh, I don't claim to know what happened, but I'll tell you one thing. You and I inquired in court in a uh, let's see, ran into turbulent skies many times in our career, 
And I don't well, think you'll agree with me, Neil. The last thing you're going to do is go to full power. I don't know where they're yeah, the only, the only you thing just I can hold s- what you got and go yeah. through it and come out on the other side and go about your business. Well, I, I thought that, too. And, and I also remember our training in the simulator uh, when we had a microburst. And, of course, uh, Eastern's microburst, the big one that uh, we, we trained. As a matter of fact, they gave us the that same scenario landing, as Flight 66 up at Kennedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, there were other microbursts that also caused uh, crashes, uh, Delta in Fort Worth, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Pan American out of uh, New Orleans, and yeah, uh, right. once you get that, and if you're closer to the ground, you, you know we and in our scenario, and you, I don't know if you got the same one I got in the simulator, but the uh, instructor would say, uh, "Well, go ahead, we're going to fly this scenario that uh, 66 flew, and we're going to see how you handle the airplane, and uh, you're mm-hmm. going to crash. You're not going to be able to to mm-hmm. uh, come out of this thing, and so." Uh, they gave us the wind shear problem, and then, of course, we had the lightning in front of us, and I can see it to oh, this yeah. day. Yeah. And the airplane sink rate uh, was, uh, you know, 3,000 feet a minute going down, and the next mm-hmm. we were going up. And so I kind of visualized that Atlas Air doing the same thing with the gyration, uh, the variances that Chuck said in vertical speed going up and down. Mm-hmm. I remember going out of Kansas City one time, and the thing pegged out going up. I mean, the airplane was going up and mm-hmm. we pulled the power all the way off. We were still going up. And when yeah. you get a microburst well. like that, there's hardly anything you do you can do. And, of course, our instruction was, we're close to the ground on the approach. You give it That's full power. Don't worry point. about over-boosting the engines. You're going right. to crash. About, so you, you pull the yoke back. I know. Well, it... Mm-hmm. it, it, it uh, yeah, it is different, I guess, because 6, he had 6,000 feet. feet. Yeah, And that's not a microburst yeah. up there. That's just turbulence. Microbursts occur 200 feet where it's hitting the ground and it's going this way or that way, and it grows. The increased speed, diaphragm speed, those microbursts are a different story altogether. These guys were yeah. at 6,000 feet, and there's no you don't go to full power at 6,000 feet. Because yeah. you're not hitting a microburst. Yeah. You're just hitting a thunderstorm. Yeah, and it's a whole different ball game. You're not configured to land with gear up or gear down on takeoff. You know, it's a whole different ball game. I remember 6, the, feet, a whole different ball game. Yeah, you you uncouple the auto throttles too. I remember the first mm-hmm. officer was flying through turbulence and had the auto throttles on. Of course, the auto throttles knows nothing to do except go up and back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you uncouple that and you uh, you just manual manually control the power. But speaking of that, and uh, what I, I wanted to talk about, get something off my chest, is the Lion Air and, of course, now Ethiopian Airplane that we talked about last week. And uh, uh, Carlene was on with us, and uh, we all seem to agree that uh, training uh, has a lot to do uh, with uh, problems that were presented. But uh, some, of the, some of these problems now, I think, were... From what I'm reading, uh, initiated by the manufacturer of the airplane, and uh, uh, I don't think the word got out too well about what they intended to do with the Max 8. I think they intended to make it a uh, a wire fly-by-wire airplane, and Boeing never Later used to here. do that. It was fly-by cable, and that was that was one of the great things about the Boeing aircraft. 
uh, you know, right. like a Piper Cub. When you push the rudder controls, a big old a long cable, not a big one, but a long cable went back to the rudders, the back of the airplane, and moved it. But uh, mm-hmm. And Boeing built airplanes that way. Uh, yeah, they had yeah. electronics going to certain parts, but now they want to put electronics to everything and yeah. take away. I mean, I mean, a stall, we knew how to recover from stalls, Jim. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we learned to recover from stalls. And I think, Chuck, you were telling me earlier that in flight training now they don't even teach stalls. That's hard to believe. Yeah, I was yeah. talking to a young man who uh, just got on with a major airline, and uh, they tell you about them, but they don't do it. And, if you, and of course, if you're in a s- small airplane, you know, trying to get your private license, they don't want you to be in a stall. Well, they tell you about them. They know how to get out of one if you get in it, though. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to follow the airplane. Yeah, and, and Jim, Holder, Jim, we used to fly the 727 at night in Atlanta and did our flight training out uh, in the uh, in the air after midnight. Do you remember those days? We'd take Lord, off and yeah. go out to the area out there, and we actually did stalls, uh, full stalls, and I pushed know. the throttle up and came out of it. But now yeah. Boeing is trying to tell the computer to recover from these stalls, and the, the pilot doesn't even know how to recover from it. It's just incredible what's, what's going on. Well, I'd like to point out one thing. There are First 737s had the little engines, and they were a little bitty airplane. They were competing with the DC-9, and they had three crew members, and they got into a big fight about they only need two because the DC-9 only had two. But it was a not yeah. a fly-by-wire airplane. It was just like a 727. You had yeah. direct connection to the flight control. Now, the same, second thing I want to bring up, it's a whole different subject now, if I may. Is that okay? That's uh, okay. I saw a report on the news. They were talking about Ethiopian airplane, and no, I'm sorry, the uh, Lion Air airplane. They they said that the captain tried 21 times, and every time it would reset, and the and the trim would go further and further down till it hit the full stop nose down. Now, picture this: the first two or three times, it only did two and a half degrees, but they did four of them. You're pulled down on the stabilizer, and that makes it even worse. But he did 21 times, and he turned and he handed it over to the co-pilot. This is what the news is saying that they've got off the somewhere. I don't know where they got it. And the co-pilot tried four times, and they it went back to the captain. Now my my question is, how do they know that? Now the flight data recorders they are so sophisticated they might say that well, look this yoke is doing this or that yoke is doing this and I don't know if they have that capability I think that on the line air they got that off of the cockpit voice recorder like the captain maybe said well, you do it you, you got it you got it you got it and then after they said I got it back I got it back I don't know I don't know but I think that that was on the cockpit voice recorder and my question is if that was on the cockpit voice recorder they did say they got it and it spread out good why don't we know what the cockpit voice recorder say and that yeah, would be extremely, exactly. extremely important to know what happened to that airplane and apply it to the one in Ethiopia. Do, do yeah. you all understand what I'm saying? 
that yeah. they must have gotten it off the cockpit flight record, voice recorder, and yet nobody knows. And nobody I've been knows. back and forth with George Yen on this for three weeks. Why aren't they releasing? Not the boys. We don't want to hear them talking. But what were they saying to each other? What was going on in the cockpit voice recorder? Why not? I imagine Boeing doesn't want that out. Well, I guess you won't like what they found out about Boeing has got a, a third person or a company that is looking at their procedures that the FAA was supposed to send somebody over and do, and they didn't do it. Well, and that's going to be another whole different ballgame. Things are not good right now for Boeing or the FAA because they're starting to point fingers at each other. Yeah, yeah. About certifying that airplane and this 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 uh, M castle is. Uh, well, they said that. Well, they said that a ahead, portion of the flight control software suspect was certified by one or more of Boeing employees who worked in the outsourcing arrangement. So Chuck was saying they do have an outsourcing arrangement, and that a person familiar with the work who wasn't authorized to speak. Said that. Yep, and that's going to be the that's the finger pointing stuff. FAA said, okay, you guys take it yep. over because we're understaffed and don't have the money. You guys take it over. And now they're trying to point the fingers over at Boeing and Boeing and, and, and the Congress and everybody else is probably saying, well, let's go back and look at FAA. Why didn't they? And they're saying we didn't have the resources or the money to do it. It's going to well, be a lot of finger of the, going on here. Yeah, the purpose of the MAX airplane. Uh, Boeing's marketing wanted to uh, sell a new model, just like the new cars come out every year. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it went through a, a, a cycle of different airplanes, different models. And uh, uh, then they stretched it. I mean, they put the bigger engine on it, and they sold it as a more fuel efficient. I mean, mm-hmm. you can only go so fast that airplane. I mean, that's structurally, it just won't go any faster. So the more power they put to the airplane, uh, they redesigned and configured the engine so it would be more fuel efficient. So now we've got a new model that we can sell to companies to buy a fuel-efficient airplane. And so companies did and are buying it. And uh, But it changed the whole uh, the flight characteristics of the airplane. And I guess they, yes, they, had to, they, they had to put the CG forward because those engines, you know, and the yeah. landing gear went backwards and the engines yeah. went forward a little bit, changed, playing with the CG. But all of this stuff yeah. is going to be peanuts compared to the lawsuits and everything else that's going to come. To save a few gallons here and a few gallons there, they're going to be wishing they had the whole thing the way it used to be and just, uh, oh, well, forget it. Yeah. I mean... I'm waxing. <laughs> I better shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, we don't need, I don't think, uh, uh, I, I, I think I'm pilot enough that I know how to recognize a stall. And f- when are you going to get an airplane flying the line in a stall configuration anyhow? The only time you're anywhere well, near a stall configuration is if you're up at altitude. And you, you mm-hmm. just don't, you, you shouldn't be where you are, and uh, you don't have much air crossing those wings. But uh, the other well, place, of course, is close to the ground on landing. Well, that's what we were talking flight, about, the microburst. 
You're saying a flight control system that can automatically push a plane into a catastrophic nosedive if it malfunctions and that the pilots don't react properly. Well, we used to. We used to push the nose down and push the power up to recover from a stall. And that's what I don't understand. They don't think pilots know how to do that anymore, but the computer does, so we'll let the computer do it. Well, I've you better start I got to tell you, yep. you know, Neil, I don't know if you've ever had one, but I had a high-speed stall at altitude like you're talking oh. about. I think we were We've like 33,000, yeah. 35,000, right? Yeah. And we hit a squall line out over Texas somewhere, and we were going to Atlanta to L.A., and we couldn't find a way to get through there. And I was a co-pilot. The captain was flying the airplane. And we turned and were paralleling about north heading, looking at this squall line. And as we came up, we saw a, a band of sunlight coming through this hole at 33,000 feet. And, and he racked that thing up in there. We hit a high-speed stall halfway through that thing. And we shuddered around until <laughs> we got westbound. And then he dropped the nose. And we went through. <laughs> and the passengers finally said, what the hell was that? But we went through in that little hole, and we went right through it. And uh, and I tell you, it scared me. I'm not going to say it didn't. It did scare me. But uh, it worked out. We got through that hole in the thunderstorm. Uh, well, I, you we, know, I, I kind of did that. Right through it, boy. Yeah, I was climbing out going to St. Louis from Atlanta and with Hassan Calloway, and I was his co-pilot, and I was my leg, and uh, did the same thing. Here's the big old thunder bumper right in front of me and I figured well there's some other clouds around it little old cumulus is they're building and I think I can go through this little old hole over here so here mm-hmm. I am thanking the airplane old Hassan letting me fly the airplane and he looked mm-hmm. at me he said I don't think you're going to make it <laughs> that's all he said <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I, I kept pulling that airplane's that. nose up 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 I knew I was going to top that cloud I didn't <laughs> and Hassan just said you're not going to make it <laughs> These about the laid back guys I've ever met, you know. That. Yeah. <laughs> I loved I flew with Hanson more than any other captain in my career with Hanson yeah. Cattle. I flew to the West Coast and that's where he liked yeah. to go and I like oh, to go yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I the day. Yep. Hey Neil, I just want to make a, a, a little note here. Um these in, these breaking news things that I've been investigating here since the last week, because 'cause I'm really uh, pissed about the whole thing that two people who the, the ability to fly an airplane didn't have the ability to two, touch two switches on the pedestal and and live to tell about it. And that's yeah. where this whole thing uh, I, I just don't understand. I got I got people who fly airplanes and they know about the switches and the, they don't have any problems with it. Why well, do the people who they don't. Because American Air, United, and uh, Southwest yeah, have been right. flying them for a long time, yeah. but they don't have any issues. Why is that? Because of the training? Well, and they said they Dorothy, had tra- Dorothy, that, uh, in yeah. another article about those airlines you just mentioned, they said that, that there were 11 pilots with different airlines flying that experienced what uh, Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines uh, experienced. And they told their experience in their write-up. Uh, when they did the report, and they wrote it up. And one of them, I think, uh, reported it to the FAA. And it was in a MAX airplane, a 737 MAX. And what but are they, they doing? Were able to, 
recover from it. They were able to recover from it. But what they did, what they did was, and I don't think this is a mystery, don't get me wrong, that what those guys did was they reacted with the yoke and locked it. You know, you pull against yeah. what it's yeah. trying break, to do break, and lock yeah. it. And then if you break. release it, seven, twelve seconds later, it does it again. That's the difference between these airplanes and the airplanes that you and I flew. You locked yeah. it like that, and if you relaxed it and turned the thing off, you would be okay. But you you would you locked it, and then they're sitting there thinking what's going on, and they released the pressure because the nose was coming up, and everything yeah. was fine, and then it dove over again. And after they do four of them, it goes to a maximum angle down on the elevators, and and it was really worse. It, every time they released it and recovered, it was worse than the time before. And after four, they went to the max deflection on the elevator trim. Yeah. So it wasn't yeah. quite the same thing. That's the switches off. That wouldn't have happened. That's right. Yeah. But they 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 did that, and then everything went back to okay. Hey, we're okay now. And then twelve seconds. Oh, there it goes again. You know. And they stopped it, and everything's okay. Oh, there it goes again. And I can see that could be very confusing. And I agree. All you got to do is turn those two switches off, and you turn off the power to the. But but then when you do that, you still got the trim all the way down. The only way to get that trim back up is through those motors back there, or you can crank yeah, it up yeah. with a hand crank. And that's a lot of crank to get them pulled down yeah. to get it back yeah. to neutral where you want it. It's easy oh, to say they didn't they didn't do it right because they were faced with something that me, you, Neil, and anybody else that flew the seven twenty seven or the seven thirty seven was faced. Yeah. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. You know, yeah. they always find a way to blame the pilot. I think we all revert back to exactly what Neil said. It's training. Yeah, but you're training on something nobody knows about. How do you train that's, well, something that's true. That nobody knew about? That's what Boeing's going to have a big problem with. Right. They're in a heap of trouble. They may be called a difference. They may be called a on that, B-2 airline or something down the road. Yeah. Nobody well, really. How, yeah. They how, did the other, how did the other three major airlines know all that to do it? Because they read the I manual. I guess they got lucky. They never had the problem. They never had the problem. They may have thought they had the problem. I'm not sure they had the problem. Well, you know, the, the, a lot of those, those Americans. reports that were turned in were, were not sent publicly. That's What's that program called, Neil, you know what I'm talking about, where you can have something and you can write it and it remains uh, private. They don't come back and yeah. get to you. If you yeah. had an accident or something bad happened, you'd file that report real quick because that protected right. you yeah. from uh, being a uh, Violated by the FAA, and I turned in a few myself, and you may have too. Near misses too. They had some near misses. Yeah, yeah. I forgot what that was called. I I forgot too. It was um, some kind of. I uh, know I was the council chairman and vice chairman, and anytime anybody called me in Atlanta that something happened, I said, "Did you file a report? What the hell was that thing called?" And if you <laughs> file that report, then they would get it, and you could say, here's the report I filed. You can't violate it. And that was a fact, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's yeah, what sure. these guys did on American and whoever else that filed a report on those. They were doing that to cover in case somebody wrote a, up on it, and they could say, well, we filed a report. Yeah. 
Well, a lot of these... The fact that they did it and got through it, what does that say, though? They say that that... Does it say that they had the error and they wrote about it, but how did they... Right. And it's anonymous, and it goes to the FAA, and then three months later, somebody will read that report. That's the way it works. Yeah. Or at least the way it used to work, yeah, something like that, a long time ago. And you'd never hear about it from yourself when you did that, unless you really screwed up bad. <laughs> then you might hear about it three, four days later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was cover your ass type thing, that report yeah. these guys were talking about. Well, it's going to come out because they got that <laughs> Senate subcommittee now going to be delving yeah, into thought... it. Yeah. They'd be lucky well, to get they, them planes off in the next six months. Yeah. I know it. Boeing says, what, in a couple of weeks, and, and the FAA says, well, maybe by the end of the month or next month, and it's going to be a long time before they uh, do a fix on that, I believe. Well, I will say what I've said many times, and I call it the house switch. They need to have something on that yoke that with all yeah. of this hardware, all this computer stuff running around the airplanes and you 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 don't have cables to the aerons, they gotta have something somewhere where you can turn off all this stuff, one click on the switch and the airplane goes <laughs> back. Now I know they're fly by wire now, so you can't do away with all the electronics. You gotta have something because they've got fly by wire. But you can click all these other one time you click it. And the pilot can fly the airplane. Even if the battery is running to fly the wire. Somehow, you can fly the wire. All this other stuff is turned off. But as George Jen said, do they know how to fly manually? (laughs) (laughs) They don't know. They ought not to be there. (laughs) Well, have a big red light. You remember uh, Gary Trudeau's far side? (laughs) We got a red light, Captain. You may but this time, it's the breaker. big red light. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be quiet. <laughs> okay, very good. Boy, good discussion. Good discussion, guys. and uh, Good information about uh, the way we were brought up. And and uh, maybe uh, the, the Eastern Brats will be talking about the generation that uh, they were kids to us. So uh, I forgot what generation that is. Baby boomers, I guess it is, the baby boomers. Yeah, they're baby boomers. Yeah. But, uh, Dorothy, what do you got for us in, as far as the future shows? Or do you remember? Well, uh, I want to thank first our sponsors again, Reaper, uh, for their wonderful contribution to our radio show, which, of course, keeps us bringing the legacy of each into our family. Another is the sponsor today, and another member that sent in a contribution of $100, Joe Leonard. He's 77 years old from Orlando, Florida, and we so appreciate that immensely because without your donations and REPA, this program would not be able to continue the way it is. Uh, the names of all of these sponsors are, for 2019 are listed on the homepage under Sponsors, so be sure to check it out. And Neil will be sending Joe um, Neil's book, The Wings of Many, in the mail. Uh, we have 1,013 members now, so we're just thrilled that we have that many members. I can remember our drive last year to get 1,000, so... That, too, has made us very excited about all of that. Uh, We have upcoming shows next week. We have the Dirty Dozen of Maintenance 
followed by Holy Blue Sunoco. That's in March 25th. Then in April, we start out with the big three, Atlanta, Miami, and New York City, and those are the three airports in New York City. And then we'll follow that with repartee. And for the last of April, uh, the Eastern Air Cargo and History Air Freight and Eastern Family Hobbies. So we've got some great programs coming up, and we encourage everyone to listen to us every Monday evening. We have the Thursday from the Eastern File, and we also have every other Thursday the Old Time Radio with uh, Neil and Don Gagnon as hosts. So we have lots of things that are working out great for the Eastern family, so be sure to go to our website. You can check on any of the dates there and the times, and uh, please utilize it. We do work hard to give you the best of what we can we have our calendar for anyone like Silver Liners or even Reaper who would care to put their activities on there. Just send us to host at com. And, two, if anybody wants to contribute, you also can see our donation button at the bottom of our homepage. We certainly appreciate anything that the EAL family does for us in the contribution area. Back to you, Neil. Well, hey, Dorothy, you question. said something I, about – yeah, go ahead, Jim Holder. Did she say something about repartee is going to be a topic in the future? Yes, it's yes, going it to will. be yes, it will April be. 8th. Oh, well, since I'm the editor, I, maybe, <laughs> yep, maybe I don't need to call in on that one. It'll be mentioned for <laughs> no, sure. We're, that. we're going to be we're going to be uh, – Doing a little uh, talk over the telephone, Jim Holder, a little bit about that one. Uh, I'm not going to call in on that show. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Dorothy, I don't want to be did... the editor anymore. <laughs> Listen, Jim, do you want to give us any update on the uh, REPA reunion that you're having September 4th and 5th? Mm, well, yeah, it is going to be at the Embassy Suites in Kennesaw, northwest of uh, Atlanta, right off I seventy five. And there's going to be a lot coming out. Uh, Johnny Johnson, I mean Johnny Steinmetz, is uh, uh, still working to firm out the details. But he said something about uh, at our banquet we're going to have Ruth Chris steaks and chicken for the yeah. meal. I hope that works out. Ruth Chris is sort of a great restaurant. You know what I mean? And uh, and that's part of the you know that's part of what you pay for and to, that's uh that's enough for me to go right there. Of course, I got to go anyhow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's gonna be there. We're gonna we're gonna have a we're gonna have a buffet and we're gonna have yeah. a good time. And we hope people come up there just right up the street from downtown Atlanta, out on seventy five Northwest. All right. Uh, Dorothy, you were telling me that you've got on the website now a video of um, some of this Lion Air and Ethiopian Air videos. Yes, I do. Videos. Um, there's a great video on there, and uh, Chuck was looking at it, and he was saying how anyone that doesn't really understand some of the mechanism of the MCAS system that they're all talking about it is explained by one of the gentlemen there that was a, an FAA inspector, and um, it's a great video. It's a short video, but it has the diagrams on there for everyone to see. It's uh, on our 
video page. You'll see it, not a problem. And uh, there's also that the articles, both articles are on there, as well as the Atlas article. I placed them up there as well. And uh, people can go there, and it will connect them directly to the video. So it's uh, a lot of reading to do, but it's well worth it to really understand what's going on. And watching the video is excellent because it really does explain quite a bit of what they're talking about so you'll understand the difference in the mechanism they're talking about. We had uh, the new editor of the Silverliners, uh, Brenda Shabbat, uh, called me yesterday, and we chatted a little bit, and they're going to do a little promo of the radio show on their news uh, magazine. They, she's sitting out of the editor. She took over from uh, Connie Kerrigan of the Silverliners. Connie had been doing the the magazine for years and years, and even when I was the editor, Jim, before you, uh, and uh, Connie did a great, great job. Uh, Brenda is now taking over that chore, and she uh, called me and wanted to get some information about the radio show and how many countries, so I had to go back to the computer and look for last month's how many uh, different countries last month uh, that tuned in and and listened on their computer to our radio show, and there were 35, I believe it was 35, wasn't 35, it, 35, right. 35 different countries around the world. So we've had well over, probably 50 by now, but right. we uh, have. it's we incredible. Have, uh, several different times we've had that. You can see um, uh, the uh, chart that they have on there, and yeah. it's really very impressive. Um, it's all over the world, and that really yeah. pleases us. We really work hard yeah. to try to, to get everything so that people will know what's going on everywhere in the world, and it looks like we're succeeding gratefully, so we're yeah. pleased about that. i just like to find uh, out that one person in Siberia that listened to us. Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> Siberia. Was reported. We had one listener. Really? Uh, yeah. 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 And uh, it, it's just absolutely amazing. Yep. And you Alaska, see, you see on the Canada, there's so the, many countries. Yeah. It's unbelievable when you look at Ghana in, in Africa. Yeah. Iran even got one. Got one listener right. in Iran. He's probably wanting to get out, trying to figure yeah. out how you can get out on the radio show. I guess. Well, we also, too, by the way, we also have the Silver Liners Convention coming up in o- Omaha this year, and yeah. that, too, yeah. is on our website under the Silver Liners uh, tab, so be sure to check that out. As I said, there's quite a bit of information on there, and there's calendars that anyone can send us into events in the chapter meetings that are coming up. We'd be happy to, to list them on there. We just need you to... Send it in to host at EALradioshow.com, and we'll handle it. 57 from 41,000 feet, and we've been clear to land, so we're going to put this baby on the ground. Monday, March 
Let's see, we changed the date on that one. That would be the 25th, right? 25th, 25th, uh, that's right, yeah. And America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyberways, and the radio show looks at maintenance 30 dozen. With this, we sign off by playing Jimmy Durante's salute to Mrs. Calabash. Mr. Producer, will you strike up the band? Well, we're going to give you a little Lawrence Welk, Welk instead of Jimmy Oh, Durant. okay. Yeah, so you're hearing it. Good night, Eastern family and friends Good night, Eastern. the world. Good night, Eastern Airlines, wherever you are. We love you, Eastern. We, we love you, Eastern. Thanks for coming in. Good night, everyone. Good show, Great guys. Show. Thanks yeah. so much. Excellent. As usual. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.